You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Let's have, pray together as we get started. God, we're so grateful that you love us like that, that you care for us, that, Lord, you meet our needs. God, we're so grateful as we're reminded even today where we were 15 years ago, uh, just forever changed kind of our outlook. And, Lord, we love that uh, people flocked to hear the good news of you, that out of tragedy you brought new life. And at the same time, God, we understand that days like today, uh, for some, people feel like they want to get over it. For others, uh, they just feel like we should never forget. And so, God, we just remember those families uh, who still have an empty bed. God, we remember those who were impacted so uh, deeply, those who uh, may continue to struggle with post-traumatic stress. God, we just lift them up to you, and we say that you are a God who is able to strengthen, able to heal, able to restore And Lord, you know the number of our days, so may we live them well in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series called Tension, and we've been looking at a lot of different tensions, and tension is a part of life, but tension is also important. I know a woman who grew up in the church and believed God, but in her adult years, she wandered away from the truth, she wandered away from God, and she believed that her doubts about God actually validated that she could never come back to God. And she actually tried to use Bible verses to convince me that because she had doubt, she could never come back to God. I know a young man who says, I don't worry about things. I don't have to. I just always trust God. I never doubt because doubt is bad. And you may not believe me, but literally it's like after this young man said this, it's like he turned his head around and stuck it right down in the sand. And I was like, bro, life is going to shake you. You have no idea, but life will come along. Life will shake you. Barnabas Piper writes, he said, Christians who don't know the tension of I believe, but help my unbelief may not be Christians at all, or at least they might be very infantile ones. Our faith is one of brutal tensions. Not everyone can express this, but every Christian knows it. We feel it in our guts. There's a tension between believe and yet God help my unbelief. Whenever God stretches you, whenever he grows you, there will be a point where you're like, I know I should believe that God can do this, but there's part of me that I just don't know that he will or that he would or that he, he, he could. And there's, there's part of that with our faith that God wants to stretch. He wants to grow. And if you're here today, God wants to stretch and grow your faith. God wants to assure you that doubts are okay. And yet he wants to move you from doubt to faith. We've been in this series on tension, and we've been walking through all sorts of different tensions. We've talked about that you can know God, and yet God is a mystery. God can do what God wants to do. That God has ideals. His principles in Scripture work if we follow them, right? And yet God uses broken people. Amen, right? That the Bible is all true, but not everything true about life is found in the Bible. There are other truths in other disciplines of life, and the Bible we use as the filter to determine is it a non-biblical truth that's true but just not in the Bible, or is it an anti-biblical falsehood? It's our filter that you can know God in a moment, but it will take you and I forever to figure out what that means. That your beliefs matter, but people matter more. And if your beliefs cause you to mistreat people, then there's something wrong with your beliefs. Isn't that appropriate on a day like today and what we're remembering The next one is that you should enjoy church. 
but you should also enjoy living in the world, the natural world, the world that God created. And today we're going to talk about this issue here, that trust will grow your faith, but doubt will also grow your faith. Trust will grow your faith, but doubt will lead to stronger faith. Your trust will lead to stronger faith, but guess what? Doubts will lead to stronger faith as well. Oz Guinness wrote this, If ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what clearly was not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith has grown stronger. It knows God more certainly and can enjoy God more deeply. In other words, what he's saying, no matter how strong your faith is, at some point you're going to experience doubt. And instead of it being a sign of weakness, doubt can actually be something that causes us to dig deeper into our relationship with God and can actually make our faith stronger. But here's what people think. People typically think that doubt is the enemy of faith. They think if I doubt, then I must not have faith. If I have questions and I doubt, then, then it must be a direct attack on my faith, and yet doubt is part of life. Doubt is part of being human. You can't remove yourself from being human in that way. Doubt's a part of it. Doubt, listen, is not the enemy of faith. It's not. See, most of us have heard about Jesus, but a lot of us have doubts, right? But doubt isn't always a bad thing because doubt can lead to questions and questions can lead to answers and answers can lead to truth and Jesus said the truth shall set you free. It can be an okay thing. All of us doubt. I doubt a lot of things. I don't know about you, but I doubt a lot of things. I doubt that when I answer the phone from a number I don't recognize and it tells me that the IRS is giving me final notice and is looking for me, I doubt that it's actually the IRS contacting me. It's someone fishing for identity theft information, right? I doubt a lot of things. Uh, I, I doubt those social media requests that come from your Facebook uh, to mine that say, if you believe in this, and please copy and paste and send it out to everybody that you know to show that you actually believe it. And if you don't, you're a bad person, like a piano is going to fall on my head in my office. I doubt that. I doubt that life was a cosmic accident. That all this, that your life, that your humanity, that everything about you was just some cosmic accident. Why do I doubt that? Because I don't believe that, this, it, that order came out of absolute chaos. You know, I look and I go, the mess in your teenager's bedroom doesn't evolve into organized design without intelligent intervention. I mean, honestly, give your teenager all the time you want. Carbon date it, add millions of years, and guess what? It's not going to get organized without some sort of intelligent intervention. I doubt that everything you and I experience was a cosmic accident. I doubt political promises. I doubt power without checks and balance won't corrupt even the best person. Some of you have doubts. Some of you have doubts about God and the Bible and about the church and about life. You doubt your marriage will make it. You doubt whether your friends will be loyal because you see how they treat other people. You doubt if you will ever get out of debt or be a man or be successful. You and I have doubts. Even if Jesus is who he claimed to be, you doubt that knowing him will make any real difference in your life because you look at people who claim to know him and you wonder how they are any different. People have doubts. And here's what I want you to do. 
This may or may not be on your outline, but if you have your outline, take it out. We're going to take some notes here together today. But one thing I want you to understand is this. When in doubt, when you and I have doubts, because we will, but when in doubt, focus on who, not how. When in doubt, focus on who, not how. We're fascinated with how, right? Our culture is totally fascinated. Like, how did that happen? We say this, you know, how did that magic trick work? How did you get your kids to be polite? How do you get to the next level? How did you get her to marry you? No, seriously. How did that work, right? How did that work? But instead of asking how, 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 if you ask how did you get her to marry you, uh, you ought to ask that person questions about themselves, actually get to know that person, be relational. How is not typically a relational question, is it? When in doubt, Focus on who, not how. Well, we, let's deal with the issue of how. How reaches for certainty. How is always looking for something. It's going to say, if I can figure out how, then it reaches for certainty. Here's the danger, though, of always reaching for certainty. We're to ask good questions. But the danger of reaching for certainty, you might say, I want certainty, and you're going to ask it like this. But certainty seeks the removal of faith. Right? You're going to say, you're going to flip it over and go, I'm just looking for certainty. But sometimes certainty removes the need for faith. Some people want certainty when it comes to relationship. Let me ask you this. How romantic and trusting is a prenuptial agreement? I want certainty. Uh, actually, you're just removing faith. You're removing trust in somebody else. It's not relational. It's independent, right? John Calvin said this. Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. The human side of us, the, the, the natural side of us is going to say, I believe, but God help my unbelief. There's still something in there, right? There's still something, God, I will follow you, but there's something inside that says, yet I'm prone to wander. We understand our humanity. And so to think that we're always to have trust in God to increase our faith and never to have doubt would be to not be human. I want you to know this morning that trust will strengthen your faith, but doubt can also strengthen your faith when we focus on who and not how. Listen, uh, Barnabas Piper said this, often the intellectual obstacle to belief is a convenient excuse for rebellion. Often, the intellectual excuse regarding belief is just a convenient excuse for rebellion. We're to focus not just on how, but we're to focus on who. Behind every question we've talked about before is the issue of trust, right? Behind every question we ask, we did the seven-question series, we said behind every question is the issue of trust. And that's not any different when we begin to experience trust and doubt that we begin to experience these things we're going to ask questions so we not need not focus only on how but on who who requires trust and vulnerability asking the question who is highly relational it requires interdependence and faith it requires trust and vulnerability Remember, when we ask how, we're reaching for certainty and we're putting that over there, we're trying to actually remove at times faith. We just want certainty. We don't want to have to rely anything on faith. 
But when you and I ask who, it's going to require trust. It's going to require vulnerability. And that's why a lot of people want to ask how all the time. Because they understand if they ask who, it might require relationship from them. It might require vulnerability from them. So what happens in scripture, Jesus is out and he feeds 4,000 people. I mean, just feeds and breaks these little elements of bread, ends up multiplying the food. He feeds 4,000 people. Previously, he had fed 5,000 people. And Jesus just has this ability to take something so small, something so insignificant, so little, and provide in ways that only God could provide. And Jesus does this miracle. His disciples see it every time. They're just amazed. But if you have your Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to stay in Mark chapter 8 today, so a great day to open your Bible and follow along in Mark chapter 8. Beginning with verse 14, Jesus has just fed the 4,000. And in Mark 8, 14, it says this, The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? I mean, just, just we got to get this for just a moment. It's a pretty funny picture. Jesus just fed 5,000 people. Again, he's fed 4,000 people. And they're in the boat. They only have one piece of bread. And they're like, we're going hungry. Jesus is upset because we got nothing to eat. Isn't that crazy? I mean, he's just broken bread and feed, fed five. He could handle the 12 in the boat. Not a problem, right? But they begin to, he says, watch out for these false teachings, the yeast of the Pharisees, the, the yeast of Herod. Watch out for these teachings in culture, like through Herod, or these teachings in religiosity through the Pharisees. Watch out for both those things. And they think he's talking about bread. They still were not understanding. There are two different types of blindness. The first one is physical blindness. If a person is maybe born blind or they are physically blind, then we would call this one dark, that their eyes are darkened, that they cannot see. They're physically blind, right? We call this one dark. But there's another type of blindness. The other type of blindness is spiritual blindness. And we call this one doubt. Doubt clouds. Doubt confuses. Doubt puts you in a season where it must ask questions. Doubt can be spiritual blindness. And, and here the disciples are in the boat. They've just seen great things that should grow their faith. And yet on the inside, again, they're just as human as you and me. They begin to say, oh, Jesus is mad. We don't have enough bread. But they have with them the one who is our source, the one who is our provider, the one whose hands are not tied by such things. So Jesus realizes that their lack of understanding has kept them in doubt. And it was a miracle of feeding a large number of people in both times. But I want you to understand the results were different. That one time, 
he fed them. They had 12 basketfuls left over. Another time he fed 4,000, they had seven. But the numbers don't match up. The differences don't match up. And, and what Jesus is showing them that each time we did it a little differently. In fact, the results were a little different. And I believe that Jesus did that on purpose. He's helping the disciples know, listen, the difference was not how it happened. It was not in the results of what happened. The difference is that I am the common denominator. They're looking for how. How did that happen? How do we get 12 baskets left over? How did that happen? How do we get seven baskets left over? And Jesus is going, you're missing it. It's me. I'm the common denominator. They weren't seeing it. It's not how I did it, but who did it. Our world loves to live with hypotheses. Right? All the time. Maybe it happened this way. Maybe it happened that way. All you got to do is watch TV and watch like the History Channel or some other channel uh, try to describe a biblical event. They try to describe a miracle in a biblical event by natural means. Maybe a big mudslide came down and did this or that. Or, you know, maybe the water turned to blood because there was a bloom of red algae. Or maybe, I mean, all, we always just like live with, we're always looking for how. How did that miracle happen? How, instead of who did it? We're always looking for how. How that happened. We try to outright faith from the historical record. We try to remove God and relationship with him from a historical record. That's the nature of our culture. That would be the nature of the hedonism of a guy like Herod, who was a king. It would also deal with the removal and just trusting the how, the religious works of the Pharisees, both of which miss who Jesus is. When in doubt, ask who, not how. Well, the disciples at this time, they're spiritually blind. They, they've got eyes partially open, but they haven't totally gotten it yet. And God wants to reveal to them who did the miracle, who actually did it. And effective leaders, you know this, when the people in your organization don't have clarity, you've got to change your means of communication. Same thing as a parent. If you're a parent and you've communicated, take out the trash, take out the trash, take out the trash, and the kids haven't taken out the trash, then you've got to change how you're communicating because what you're doing isn't accomplishing that the trash is getting taken out. As a parent, you might need to take the trash out yourself and then say, you don't get allowance this week because I took it out because you didn't do it when I asked. Or you got to change it up. you got to do something different, right? you got to change your mode of communication so that they get it. Jesus does that. Mark 8, verse 22, it says this. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes... I don't know what it is with Jesus and spitting on blind people. But he does. When he had this, before he had spit and made mud, if you remember that, a couple weeks ago we talked about Jesus making mud. God can do whatever God wants to do. And he makes mud and puts it on the man's eye. This time he just loogies right on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. And Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So, so he started seeing things. He could tell, well, they're probably people because trees don't move, and, and I can see them walking around. Verse 25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. 
Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus before instantly healed blind people. But in this case, it almost looks like it takes two attempts. Like there was a partial opening of the eyes and then the eyes being completely opened. Jesus previously had fed people and his disciples' eyes were partially open to this God who can do miraculous things. But they were not fully open yet. So we had two feedings. We have two degrees of healing which lead to full sight and clarity. And Jesus, in verse 27, and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do the people say I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, you're one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. In John, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What had happened? The disciples had gone away from seeing how did Jesus feed? How did that happen to the fact that who Jesus actually is? They had moved from a, a cognitive understanding of a belief in a partial relationship with Jesus to understanding full well exactly who he was. They had moved from how to who. Peter's confession shows that his eyes now were fully opened, not partially opened. Jesus changed his mode of communication. He uses his healing of a blind man to show the disciples what he's actually trying to do to them in their lives. Your eyes are only partially open. Listen, some of you in this room, you've had a cognitive relationship with Jesus. You've had an intellectual relationship. I believe in God. I believe truths about God. I believe knowledge about God. But you don't walk in relationship with God. You're not knowing him personally. You're knowing about him. You're probably attached a little bit to somebody that you believe knows God better than you do. So you're attached. You're like, I kind of have a secondhand faith. It's really not my own. I just, I know this person's really spiritual and I have a knowledge of some faith, but, but you're not walking. Your eyes are partially blind. You see people walking around, but they're just like trees, shadows. God wants oftentimes in your life and mine to challenge our doubt and bring us to full clarity because doubt can strengthen our faith and trust can strengthen our faith. Both things God will use to bring you and me to full clarity. Jesus healed at least two other blind men in scripture and each time he healed them differently. Jesus healed people in different ways because I believe if Jesus healed the persons in the same way every time, then other people would try to just do how. How did he do it? And they would try to do the technique to get the healing to happen. Because what? Our natural, our natural bent is to trust how. Well, how did you get from broken to fixed? How did you get from where you were to being in recovery? How did you get from, from where you were to becoming a Christian? How did you become spiritual all of a sudden? How did that happen? There's, there's a healing that happens in us. And people want to know how it happened. But our job is not to tell them how, but to tell them who. Because when in doubt, focus on who, not how. Well, you got to say, well, 
you know, the, Jesus did this so he'd keep the people in healing them. He, he did this so that they wouldn't just focus on how, but they would, in fact, find out who he is. Who did it? Who did the healing? Well, who is Jesus? Some people would say, well, he's a guy who spit on a blind man and healed him. But Jesus, that's not who you are. He's here right now. His Holy Spirit is with us. He's in this room before you got here today. He wants to meet with you personally. And Jesus, let me just say, since you're here and you can hear us right now as we even talk to you, you spit and you put your hands on this man to heal. But later, Jesus, you were spit upon and other people put their hands on you and took you and led you away to be crucified so that you could heal our sin problem, so you could heal us, you could remove us from our spiritual blindness. You didn't do something to this man that, God, you weren't willing to do yourself. That's the God that you are. When in doubt, focus on who, not how. Charles Spurgeon said this, listen, he said, the strong are not always vigorous, the wise are not always ready, the brave are not always courageous, and the joyous are not always happy. Some of you in this room, you're going to say this, you're going to say, listen, I can't believe unless I have certainty. I can't believe God unless I get all my questions answered. I can't believe unless I have certainty. And remember, I would say to you, focus on who, not how. Certainty and the question how tries to remove the relationship with the one in whom you would believe. Some of you say, I doubt I doubt that God can fix where I'm broken, where I'm jacked up, where I'm messed up, where I just can't seem to control it myself. I, I doubt that God can actually fix where I'm broken. In that moment, you and I need to focus on who is the one who fixes, not how he's going to do it, right? But we do that all the time. We focus, you know, we say, God, you know, you're going to focus me somehow. You're going to heal me somehow. And God says, no, you need to understand that I'm the one who will come along to step into your life and to walk with you through what you're going through. And if good comes out from that, it's because I will do it in and through you. Focus on who, not how. I mean, honestly, let's just be honest with ourselves, right? I think maybe it'd be easier if God just spit on me and I'd be healed. How about you? Wouldn't it be easier if God just spit on you? He just spit on you, and then all of a sudden you'd be healed, right? But more likely, you and I are, are likely to spit at our distaste for a sacrificial life, our distaste for a servant's heart, or our distaste for something as little as giving up our right to be right. Spit at that idea sometimes. Wouldn't it be easier if God could just spit on us, put his hands on us, and we'd be healed? But instead, Jesus was spit upon and beaten and stretched his hands out and said, through my death and my suffering, healing is available for you, for your sin, for your cleansing, for your life. And I did that so that you would go from being spiritually blind to ones who could see clearly. I mean, thankfully, truth is not based on our feelings, right? Because our feelings fluctuate. There's a quote we'll put up on the screen. C.S. Lewis said this, Faith is the art, you guys got that on the screen? Oh yeah, it is, right there. There you go. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. And that is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, 
You could never be either a sound Christian or a sound atheist. See, truth is not based on our feelings. There are times that you and I are going to question. There are times that you and I are going to ask. And guess what? Asking is good. And you need to ask well. Some people ask poorly. And all they want to know is how. But some people learn to ask well. But part of asking well also means knowing when to lay our questions down. Part of asking well is knowing when to lay your questions down. That you understand, I could always have another question. I could always have another something. But you realize I need to lay my questions down because God is now calling me to who. He knows I could always come up with another how. And the best asker is going to say, at some point, I need to lay that down and begin to engage with who God is. Years ago, uh, my aunt died of breast cancer, and she left behind two little daughters and just struggling with that personally. Um, And I just began to write and uh, wrote a song, uh, but I'll give you some of the lyrics. Um, Just as I was struggling with it, I was like, God, like, why did that happen? Why why would such a bad thing happen? Why would you do that? I I don't know why, and and, and I'm not getting any answers back, right? I'm just, I could ask the question all I want, but I'm not getting any answers back of why that happened. And truth is, even if God told me why it happened, it probably wouldn't make me feel any better. But I would still ask why, just like you would. And so I wrote this. I said, my struggle without you is lonely. So I cling to your control. And as I work through these feelings, please help me to let go when I just want to know why. Asking well also means knowing when to lay our questions down. So often in despair or tough times, we think we need God to fix our lives somehow. God, you got to do it somehow. And we want to know, God, how are you going to come through? How are you going to do this? You're going to do it somehow, but we want to know how. Show me how you're going to fix this. But then you and I get alone with God, and we get in his word, and we say, God, I need you to fix it somehow. And and I can't see it. I don't know. I don't have clarity. I don't know what's going to happen here. God, I need you, and I get in his word. It's then that you and I realize that we just need to be reminded who God is. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know who will work it out. I don't know why it all happened, but I know that, God, you know why. God, all I need to know is you. I keep reaching for how, but what I really need is who. I need you. I need to be reminded that you are God, that no one can stand against you, that you are almighty God, that you are on our side, that you work things out as you know best, even when we don't necessarily think it's the best plan. God, you still know. Sometimes you and I need others around us to remind us of who God is. And when you doubt, it's those times we need a brotherhood or a sisterhood around you that says this, listen, it's okay that you're doubting. It's okay. We will carry you along on our trust, our faith, until your doubt subsides. That's why people need, if if you lose somebody, they always say, hey, don't make any major decisions within the first year of losing someone. Don't make a major decision. Why? Because our emotions clouded. Our, Our mind doesn't think straight. We're still in the grief process. We shouldn't make any major decisions at that time. We need people around us who will walk through. We'll help you make good decisions. We'll actually help you make, not make some of the decisions you're feeling pressured to make. 
You need a brotherhood. You need a sisterhood. And at times when you come into a crisis, not of losing somebody, but you come into a crisis of doubt in your life, you need a group around you, a community group. You need people around you. You need a brotherhood or sisterhood who will say, listen, it's fine that you're struggling. It's fine. I will carry you along on our faith until your doubts are resolved. Because we believe that trust will strengthen your faith. We also believe that doubt will strengthen your faith. That God will bring you to the point in your belief and challenge it to the point where you say, I do believe, but God help my disbelief. I was thinking yesterday as I was going through this sermon and I was driving down uh, five and, and I remember a number of years ago driving down five and thinking, God, if only, God, if only you would give us that building. We were kind of like in the process, but I was like, I, I believe you have given us that building, but help my disbelief. There were times I'm like, God, I, I don't know if it's actually going to happen. Like, God, would you do that? Is, would you do that, God? And every time I got scared, every time people came with a bad report, every time we just kept focusing on who, if this is going to happen, it's going to be God. It's not us answering all our hows, it's going to be God. And we're going to do due diligence on our part to make sure we don't drop the ball. But at the same time, we're going to work like it depends on us, but we pray knowing it fully depends on God. But there'll be times your God will say, I want to grow you up. I want to grow your faith. And you're going to say, I, I believe, but help my disbelief. And there are people around you who do not believe in Jesus. And let me make a su su relational suggestion to you. It's on your outline. It's that you tell your friends who saves them and why he did it. Why would God go to the cross? Why would Jesus do that? Then tell them how to be saved. So often people tell a friend, well, you just need Jesus. You just need Jesus in your life. And that would be like me saying, you just need Santa. You just need Santa in your life. Until they understand who Jesus is and why he did what he did, then how will come along on its own, right? Then all of a sudden they'll be like, okay, now I understand who he is. How am I now saved? And that's what people all the time who interacted with Jesus came to say, how can we be saved? Tell your friends who saves them. Tell them why he did it. Tell them who saved you and why he did it. Then tell them how to be saved. You might say something like, I used to not understand what the big deal about Jesus was, and I only lived for myself. But then I met Jesus Christ. I saw he gave himself for me. I saw why he would ever love someone like me. But he did. And his truth helped me see clearly who he really is. And you could come to know him too. They might ask, well, how? Help me understand who Jesus is, who he really is. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just for a minute, focusing on your own life. There's some of you in this room right now, and you've got doubts. If we asked you to write down a prayer request on that card that's in the seat back in front of you, you would, you would be confronted all of a sudden with not knowing how God's going to work something out. And maybe today all the reassurance you need is who? That what you really need is Jesus. In your doubt. When you can't see clearly. In your need that you need Jesus. You need Jesus more than you need an answer to your need. You need Jesus. 
And for some of you here today, you're understanding for the first time that Jesus is God, that he left heaven, that he came to earth in the form of the God-man, the only one that ever existed. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, but then on the cross took all of our sin upon himself, said, I will willingly, though I'm God and could escape, I will willingly lay down my life and pay God's wrath against your sin and I'll cancel it out and now I offer you the free gift of eternal life the forgiveness of your sins you just need to come into relationship with me believe in me know me and walk with me and if that's you today maybe you've never done this before for some of you it might even be a recommitment but right now, if that's you, you just pray something like this, right where you're seated, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life, that you are God. I ask you to come into my life. Would you make me a new creation? Forgive me of all my sin and wash me as white as snow because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.